We're in the fourth week of a series on the book of Acts entitled Gospel Movement. And if you know anything about the book of Acts, we're doing this whole series in 10 weeks, which is a very, very aggressive timeline. The book of Acts is 28 chapters. It has all kinds of stories. And because I don't think I can drive enough engagement to go like 50 weeks in the book of Acts, we're doing it in 10. So that's what we're doing. The book of Acts is really a book that is a two-part volume. You know, uh, it begins with the Gospel of Luke and the same author, Luke, wrote the book of Acts. He wrote this two-part story or history to tell about stuff that he had carefully researched. Some he was eyewitness to, some he was not. He had carefully researched, and he wrote these things down so that people could hear an ordered account of how uh, Jesus came onto the scene and then how the message and the hope of Jesus spread throughout the known world. That is what Acts is all about. We start in the book of Acts with its beginnings in chapters 1 through 5. And cha- the church's beginnings all take place within 50 days after Jesus' resurrection. And if you remember a couple weeks ago, I'm going to do this quickly. But when we looked at those first couple chapters, we looked at the idea that the church is not built because of better ideas than other philosophies. It is built on a historical reality, and that reality is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Christianity was not built because of better ideas, although it has better ideas. It is built on a reality that Jesus really came into history, that he was the Son of God, that he rose from the dead. Fifty days after his crucifixion and subsequent resurrection, the church is born. It is born by a sermon by a man named Peter who preaches this sermon 53 days after he was at a fire pit telling everybody he could tell, I do not believe in Jesus because who believes in a crucified Messiah? And now, 53 days later, he is in the courtyard in a house of most likely a wealthy person because no one else would have a courtyard big enough. 120 people have gathered to listen to him, but the cool part about it is these 120 people were not all that were listening to him. The courtyard sometimes in that day were open to the street and people were walking by and people were hearing what Peter said. And as a result of his initial sermon... 3,000 people placed their faith in Jesus. It must have been a wide street, right? A lot of people walking by. 3,000 people placed their faith in Jesus. Now, what was his sermon? Every pastor would like to know that because who wouldn't want to grow like that, right? 3,000 people in one day. What was his sermon? The author of life has come. You killed him. That was the sermon. The people are cut to the quick or, you know, they're feeling convicted by this message and they say, what should we do? Repent and believe that Jesus is the king of heaven and earth and be baptized. And they do. The church experiences opposition, but in the early days, in those first weeks after the church, the opposition largely comes from the power structure of the Jews, the religious leaders who did not want their power threatened. In chapter 6 and week 2, we looked at a new man. And this is uh, a year after the church has been built, in AD 31 approximately. Church is built are founded AD 30, AD 31. The, uh, Stephen comes onto the scene. And really, Stephen comes onto the scene because for the first time in this early church that we know of, there is a time of dissension within the ranks, right? Oftentimes in grassroots movements, everything is awesome at the beginning. It's like the Lego movie. And then after that period, as, as it grows and structure needs to be had, people get a little 
upset about the way the decisions are made, right? This is how it always works. And the decision that was being made that was un- they were unhappy with, this early fledgling church that is growing almost more rapidly than its structure can sustain, is an issue of money. And it usually is this way, money. The church had been taking offerings, and the offerings had been going to help those in the church community who had needs, and the Greek-speaking Jews felt like the Hebrew-speaking Jews were getting preference as it related to the money. And so the church did a really interesting thing. It just gave over the entire system of money over to the Greek-speaking Jews. Can you imagine that? That is the, that is the equivalent of our president giving the Mexican-Americans the right to figure out our immigration problems. That's exactly what that is. And so the church is founded, and they are given, they, are, they create this structure of deacons, and these deacons start to uh, give out the money, and everything is good again, and the church is happy with the solution. And now Stephen comes onto the scene. But when we see what Stephen is really doing, we do not see him dishing out money. We see him preaching and doing miracles in the name of Jesus. And now, once again, the structures of authority and power in the Jewish uh, ranks are threatened. And they power up and they take Stephen to court before the highest court in the Jewish land, the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin is a Jewish court. I know this is a lot. I'm going to go quick. The Jewish court is the highest Uh, officiating court in the land. It's like our Supreme Court of America. And yet, because the Jews do not rule themselves, they are ruled over by the Romans, they do not have the authority to kill anybody. They have the authority to take that person and to have them taken before the Romans if they think capital punishment is necessary. Stephen gives a sermon as he... It's not a sermon in the way I'm preaching now. You've come to church willfully because, for whatever reason, you've come to church... And uh, you're sitting here listening to me and you expect me to speak. Stephen has been brought and he's been put in a chair or put before a group of men. And there's hundreds behind him, uh, 70 in front of him. The Sanhedrin was made up of 70 men. And he is to defend himself on two counts, that he is anti-law and anti-temple. And he gets up and he says, a big history lesson. This is his sermon. And he says this, the Jewish nation has always rejected God's prophets. I'm sure it will reject me because it killed the very one who was the coming son of God, Messiah. And as they do, as he says those words, the leaders get furious. He looks up to heaven. He sees the heavens open and the son of man, Jesus, standing at the right hand of God the Father. And he says, look who I see. And they kill him on the spot. It's a lynching, not a court. The Sanhedrin doesn't even have the power to put someone to death. And in a mob lynching-like fashion, they take him out of the court and they stone him to death. This creates this environment where the church is now vulnerable. And now, Tons of Christians who follow Jesus are being persecuted and killed in Jerusalem. And so the most natural thing in the world happens. The church begins to spread. The people who are under threat of death, who are Christians who live in Jerusalem, begin to spread out and they move to places like Damascus and all over the world. We're going to look at Damascus and we're told in chapter 8 verse 4 that in this way the message of Jesus spread to the surrounding communities. Last week, Nathaniel preached, and he did a great job talking about Philip. He is the second deacon we're introduced in, how the gospel went to a group called the Samaritans, a group that was half-breeds, and nobody wanted anything to do with if they were Jewish. 
But we see this series is about how the gospel transforms us, transforms the ones who preach, and transforms the ones who hear. And the message and the good news of Jesus changed racial boundaries to the point that the preachers and the proclaimers of the good news of Jesus Christ do not look at anybody as unworthy to hear and to be a part of this new movement. And so Philip goes to the Samaritans, a group that the Jews hated, a group that Jesus went to during his earthly ministry and proclaimed the good news that Jesus is the crucified, resurrected, coming again, Son of God. The story we pick up this morning is found in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 31. I'm not going to read the whole text. I'm going to refer to portions of it as we move through it. And it is a very important text. It is about the conversion of Saul. Now, we're first introduced to Saul in the book of Acts in um, chapter, the end of chapter 7, the first couple chapters of verse 8. It is Acts who, at the stoning of Stephen, holds the coats of those who stone him and looks on with approval. And it is Paul, who at that, or Saul, who at that time begins a, uh, a policy of becoming the poster child for persecuting those who follow Jesus. And so he begins to work with the Sanhedrin and the local, the uh, Jewish leaders, and they begin to root out and to go and uncover all of those who are Christians so that they can bring them for trial or perhaps for just murder, for just killing. And now we are introduced to Saul, and this text that we're looking at, Acts chapter 9, is the text of his, the story of his conversion, which is miraculous. And so we pick up two years after Stephen and Philip, approximately AD 33, AD 34, we pick up with a man who has been persecuting the church for two, three years, and now he is on his way to a city of Damascus, a city that is 135 miles north-northeast of Jerusalem, to round up any Christians he can, the very same Christians who would have spread out because of the persecution that broke out after Stephen, so that they can stop the message of Jesus from being proclaimed. And here we pick up the story. We see in verse 1, the text says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples, and so he went to the high priest, and he asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found anyone who was there who belonged to the way, this is uh, language for the way of Christ, or the way, this is what the, the people who were Christians, who were Christ followers, were called, they belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Now, this may seem confusing to you a little bit um, in light of the way Paul may talk a little later on. And I want to I talk about this. This is a man of great boldness and great zeal. Have you ever met a person that's really zealous, you know? Sometimes there's, you meet people and they're really zealous and the smallest things are the biggest things. Does that make sense? They're not fun to be around, actually. Zeal. And this Paul or later become known as Paul, Saul, was a man of great zeal. But I want you to see, what I really want you to see this morning, it's one of my major things I hope you take home, is that his zeal was misplaced, but it was not the zeal of hatred. It was the zeal of hope. For Saul didn't just want to go around and kill people. He was zealous for the ways of God, And he wanted to see the reign and the rule of God come about. 
I want to show you what I mean. If you turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3, I'm going to show you what might seem like a confusing text, but I'm going to help you see what it says. Philippians chapter 3, and I know the, te- the screen says 1 through 6, but we're actually going to look at verse 4 through 6. Philippians chapter 3, and it's on page 952. Philippians chapter 3, and here's what Paul says when he is describing his life before Christ and the way that he would describe himself as a religious almost fanatic. Though I have my reasons myself for confidence in the flesh, if someone else they thinks they have reasons to put more confidence in the flesh, I have even more. What he's saying here is, I was the greatest of all Jews. This confidence in the flesh originates from uh, the pattern of circumcision, you know, and, and, and confidence in the flesh results that I took on circumcision. I was one of the real Jews, but confidence in the flesh goes beyond circumcision to all the different things that Jews were required to do. And the Jews had all kinds of requirements, who they could eat dinner with, what they were supposed to eat, who they were supposed to associate with inside the faith, outside the faith, should they pay taxes or not. Their laws were so extensive and they had so many of them. Paul is saying, I studied law, the law. He doesn't mean he went to school to become a lawyer like and go to court. He means I studied the Torah, the law, the first five books of the Old Testament. I knew the laws and I kept them. See what he says? I was circumcised on the eighth day. That's when you're supposed to be. I was the, the people of Israel. I was of the right people. I was of the right tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. In regard to the law, I was a Pharisee. I kept it all. As for zeal, I persecuted the church. As for righteousness, based on the law, I was faultless. Now, he's bragging about all these things he does. And I've always been confused. I was always confused for many years about this. Why does he brag about persecuting the church, you know? Because in our Western world, in our modern world, we do not think of, oh man, they love Jesus so much, they go out and harm other people who don't love Jesus, right? In fact, if we were to think of a person that does that, we would say, well, I'm not sure you love Jesus very much, or certainly you have your love misplaced. But Saul had a different understanding of zeal that was based on the way many, many of the Israelites and the Jews that were faithful and saw following uh, the Jewish faith saw zeal. And to do this, I'm going to show you this. I'm going to tell you a couple different stories. The first story is about a man named Phineas. He's not a very well-known character, although some of you may remember this story. It's found in the book of Numbers in chapter 25, and I'm going to skip some of the background at great personal, uh, you know, cost to myself. Now, Here's what's happened. The Israelite nation is coming into the promised land. And to come into the promised land, they're taking over these other nations. And as they're coming in, the Moabite king, Balak, is really threatened by the Israelites. And he hires a man named Balaam to curse the Israelites. And Balaam wants to because he's being paid a lot of money to do so. But he can't because God won't let him. And it's confusing. And you can read all about it in Numbers. And so he blesses the Israelites, and Balak, who paid him a lot of money to curse the Israelites, is really angry. And so Balaam comes up with another way to trip up the Israelites. I told my, this story to my boys when we were reading through the when I was telling them Bible stories one night, and my wife was looking at me like I was crazy, because here's what happens. Although I said it very, I'm going to tell you the way I told the kids, and then I'm going to tell you the real way in a second. Phineas 
uh, comes on the scene because Balaam comes up with a really good idea to trip the Israelites. He tells the king of Moab, Balak, to send his beautiful, the beautiful women of Moab into the Israelite camp to sexually draw the Israelites away from their God and to arouse the anger of God against him. And so Balak says, that's a great idea. I'm going to send these women in and they're going to sleep with the Israelite men and they're going to incite them to serve idols. And that's exactly what they do. They go in there and God's anger is aroused and Moses and the elders are at the tabernacle and they are weeping at what has happened, happening. And a man named Phineas comes with a spear as Moab, a Moabite woman and a Israelite man walk right by the weeping Moses and the elders into a tent to commit the act of sex, you know, I said to my kids it was kissing, and to commit the act of sex, and I was telling this story to my kids this I was telling this story in first service, and I was telling the story, and all of a sudden I realized my kids are sitting right there, and I'm like, so anyway, they, Phineas runs into the tent with his spear and stabs them both right through the heart and kills him. God's anger is assuaged. And the plague that had broken out and God's anger that had broken out ceases. Now, that's a really crazy story. And for some people who aren't used to the Old Testament, you're like, yeah, that's what I don't like about the Old Testament. If you think that way, I, I can understand it, right? Now, in Psalm 106, verse 30 and 31, the psalmist, this psalm is a historical psalm. The psalmist says this, Phineas, in his great zeal, acted when no one else would. And he turned away the wrath of God, and his act was credited to him as righteousness. Do you see this? The Israelites, I'm going to tell you another story in a second. The Israelites believed that through following the law and through morality and through uh, doing what is right, they can earn or lose God's favor. They had really good reasons to believe this. I'll give you some homework that only 2% of you will probably do. But if you want to see what I mean, go home and read Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, and you will see exactly what I mean. Second story I want to tell you is this. He's more famous. There's a man, his name was Elijah in 1 Kings 18. He is speaking out against a evil king, King Ahab, who has led the Israelites into worshiping of Baal, an idol. And as he leads the Israelites into the worshiping of Baal, Elijah stands... He thinks alone, although he's not alone. He thinks alone against King Ahab and the servants of Baal. And so he makes a challenge to the servants and the priests of Baal. And he says this, come with me to Mount Carmel and we will both make sacrifices. And we will not light them on fire and we will ask our God to light them on fire. And whoever asks, whoever's God responds, he will be God. And King Ahab and the servants of Baal or the prophets of Baal say, that sounds good. We know our God will answer and your God won't. And so the prophets of Baal, 400 of them actually, surround this altar and they cut themselves and they scream and they do all kinds of crazy religious weird stuff. Is weird. And nothing happens. Elijah goes to there. He builds a simple altar made of 12 stones. He drenches his altar in the offering with water so that a drench fills up around the altar. Uh, a trench, he, there's a trench and it fills up. <laughs> and I always misspeak. It's harder than it looks. Anyway, 
trench fills up, and Elijah simply says, God, show them that you're God. And immediately, that was a good snap. Immediately, immediately, fire comes down from heaven. Now, you know what happens next? It's so foreign. And my kids ask me questions about this all the time, and I talk to them about it. It's so foreign. You know what Elijah says next? Our God is God. Israel, stand up and slaughter the 400 prophets of Baal. You know what that sounds like to me? It sounds like zeal, right? Because the Israelites believed. You have to understand two things. The Israelites knew that it was their idolatry and sin that led them into exile those 700 years ago. And for the Israelite, they believed they were in exile still because they were living in Israel, but Rome controlled them. And they knew it was their sin that led them there. And second, they believed that Christ was coming, or not Christ, they believed God was coming again because the text of the Old Testament said it all over the place. Malachi 3.1, see the Lord will come again and fill his temple. And so Paul believed God was coming again and idolatry and sin would keep him from coming. And so Paul is not a man filled with hate going around killing people that he disagrees with. He is a man full of religious zeal seeking to bring the will and the reign of God to earth through wiping out people who were sinners, whether they were inside the Jewish faith or who believed in Jesus or whether they were pagans, right? But you only had the authority to do the first. And on the road to Damascus, everything changes. Now, this is all about Saul's conversion. He's on his way to bring the will of God to earth. And on the way, something incredible happens. It's told in verse 3 through 9. A light from heaven shines and a voice from heaven speaks. And the voice from heaven that speaks says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Saul responds, and this is so interesting, right? Because Saul responds and says, who are you, Lord? Now, isn't that interesting? This reminds me of my wife when we were dating. And, uh, you know, when my wife would be like, man, you are so awesome. Who is this Bill, right? <laughs> now, that never happened. But anyway, but you get the point. Remember in Nacho Libre, who is this Encarnacion? He knows who she is. He doesn't know who she is, yes? He knows who she is. He doesn't know who she is. Now, the same is happening here. Saul knows it's God speaking to him, and he says, who are you, God? Man, aren't we all asking that question? I went to school for eight years, and I've been studying the Bible forever, and still, who are you, God, you know? All the time. Who are you, Lord? And he says something that is so fascinating. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now think about it. You're smart. I'm smart too, maybe. Saul hasn't persecuted Jesus. Not literally. Jesus died, rose from the dead, and now has ascended to heaven. He's not on earth. You see the beauty of what Jesus says, God says? When you persecute my people, you are persecuting me. This is God forming solidarity with humanity. When you persecute my people, you persecute me. Why are you persecuting me? Saul Saul responds to the voice, what should I do? Which is probably the only really good response that you should have when God speaks to you. 
And God shows him to move into the city of Damascus. He's made blind. And he goes into the city of Damascus and he meets there a man named Ananias. And we see Ananias' fear. And, and, and if you understand the story, you understand that Saul goes in to uh, the city of Damascus. And at the same time that this vision is going where Saul is seeing the light and hearing the voice, Ananias is also receiving a vision, a vision that this man, Saul, who has been a persecutor of Christians, will now be this chosen instrument to take his message, the message of Jesus, to the, to the Gentiles. And Ananias says the most beautiful and natural thing possible, and it's something I can really relate to. Ananias says, I don't know if I want anything to do with this guy. He kills us, right? I don't know if I want anything to do with this guy. He kills people like me. You know, my personality goes something like this. Paul is bold and brash and zealous. I am safe, right? If there is a risk or a safe side, I am always on the side of safe. And Ananias is kind of this way. He's on the side of safe. And yet, I think God does so much of his work through worried, nervous, non-risk-taking people who are still obedient. You hear that? Who are still obedient. And Ananias says, well, I don't really want to, but you're God, I'll do it. And he goes to Paul. He heals him by the power of God from his blindness. He gives him a place to rest. Saul takes some food. He hasn't eaten in three days. He regains his strength. And the first thing Saul does is he goes out into the temple and he starts to preach. Now, remember a couple weeks ago, I told you that I'd always been fascinated about the sermons in the book of Acts. And I wanted to do a series where just week after week, I preached on a different sermon from the book of Acts. And I finally came to the conclusion that I couldn't pull this off because every sermon is almost identical, right? So Saul begins to preach, and how does he preach? I'm just fascinated by this idea, because when the gospel was first preached, it wasn't preached anything like the way I preach most Sundays, right? N.T. Wright, who wrote a fascinating book uh, called Just Paul, it's, it's, I like it because it's not a clever title, it's very clear what it's about. He, he says this in his book called Paul. He says, Paul's preaching when he started was not a fresh twist on the regularly teaching work, the regular teaching work of the lowest local Jewish community. He wasn't offering advice on how to lead a more holy life. He certainly wasn't telling people how to go to heaven when they died. What was Paul doing? He was making the all-time one-off announcement that Israel's hope has been fulfilled, that the king has been enthroned, that he was declaring that the crucified resurrected and coming again, Son of God, Jesus Christ, was Israel's long-awaited Messiah. And Paul begins to preach. Do you see his sermon? His sermon is found in verse 22 of chapter 9. Or 21 and 22. He began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. It talks about the response. Isn't this the one who used to kill, you know, uh, raise havoc in Jerusalem among, among those who call on his name. And yet Saul grew more and more powerful and he baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. I guess as we conclude this morning, I just want you to take home a few things. Really just two. First, where is your zeal located? What are you zealous about? 
I don't know, there's something about zeal that makes us feel good, isn't it? I don't know. I never get on Facebook. Uh, my Facebook picture is when my child was born, my first child, and he's a, almost 11. But, but I've noticed on Facebook that a lot of people like to get on there and just talk bad about other people. It's zeal, isn't it? It's like, oh, man, this is awful that they would do this, and they put it out there for everybody to see. I've noticed that Christians really like zeal, too. They like to stand against people, call out their brother and sister when they're doing things that they don't agree with. Where is your zeal in? Certainly there's a place for zeal, right? We see Jesus very zealous in the Gospels, and many of you may be even thinking this. Let me tell you the most two famous occurrences of his zeal. The first is... um, In Matthew chapter 23, I can still remember where I was when I first read that text for myself. You know, do you remember when you first started to read the Bible on your own? I was in my RV, uh, my parents' RV. We used to go camping. And you know how those RVs have those little bunk beds above? I always got that place because no one else wanted to climb it, which is really the prime location in the RV. It's the biggest bed. And there's a curtain so no one can see you, which is awesome. And uh, I was up there, and I was using my privacy in that bunk bed to read from my Blue Adventure Bible that was soft cover, Matthew. And I got to Matthew 23, and I read the most crazy stuff there. I was like, I didn't even know this stuff existed in the Bible, where Jesus condemns the Pharisees in the harshest terms for turning people away from God who were looking for him, and where they are the sons of hell, (laughs) not the people who are looking for God. The second most famous, I think, occurrence of Jesus' zeal is found when he turns out the moneylenders at the temple, when people were coming to worship at the temple. And in that day, they did it through a sacrificial system, and they needed, they needed the animals. And so there would be profiteers, businessmen, who would bring animals, and they would bring their you know, shoddy animals to the temple, and they would sell the defective animals for really expensive prices because just like when you're on the throughway and you're hungry and you didn't pack well and prepare, you need something to eat, and so you'll pay eight bucks for a Whopper, right? And Jesus goes in there and turns that place apart as people who are trying to profit off people who are coming to God. I'm going to let you decide how you handle your zeal, but I'm just going to tell you to be really careful with it. And as for me, I am going to place my zeal where I'm always looking to create a community in our church that holds out not condemnation, but wantedness to everybody. And I'll save my zeal for those who threaten that environment. Isn't that cool? (laughs) I like that. But because I'm not a bold, brash personality like Paul, I probably will be pretty nice about it. Second thing I want you to notice is conversion. I want you to notice that conversion, in some ways, we're the same, in some ways, we're vastly different. Paul, Saul at his conversion was a bold, brash, zealous man, and after his conversion, he was a bold, brash, zealous man, but yet everything had changed, right? Before his conversion, he was zealous to kill. And after his conversion, he was zealous enough about a message that he was willing to be killed, right? And it makes me think about us and all the things that we go through and all the things that we're looking for. And I'm really thinking about, (laughs) this could be Christians or those who aren't Christians. 
We are looking for something. But you know what conversion does? It doesn't, um, it doesn't change what we're looking for necessarily. It just changes that finally we see that what we were looking for cannot be found where we were looking for it. Does this make sense? That what we were looking for, maybe it was meaning, maybe it was pleasure, maybe it was whatever. But conversion does something, a Christian conversion, where we realize now that what we were looking for and all these other sources cannot be found there. And now we see that it can only be found in Jesus. Conversion doesn't necessarily dramatically change your personality. It changes the direction of your life and the hopes of your life. Notice Paul, before his conversion, his hope was for the hope of Israel. And after his conversion, his hope was for the hope of Israel. Before he believed that the hope of Israel lay in the following of the temple and the following of the law so that God might return. And after his conversion, he was convinced that God already had returned in the person of Jesus. Jesus transforms everything. And so I want to challenge you, whether you're, wherever you are in your life, what do you think about him? What do you think about Jesus? Because our faith is not built on philosophical ideas, but on a historical reality that Jesus died and rose from the dead. And that event gives weight to the ideas, and it changes the way we do everything.